Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace, and its absence, playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We are glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. These weeks are flying by. <laughs> um... What is this? Th- like, what is this? L- last week was the longest year of my life. Is that what? Um, but actually, to record the podcast every week instead of every two weeks does punctuate it in this kind of surreal way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's our one one piece of normalcy in our life. The one thing we're holding on to. Well, yeah. What's what's the latest, guys? Tell me how how's what's the status report? Sit rep. Well, Dave and I were talking about this earlier. I usually don't TMI, but um, <laughs> definitely PMSing this week. And the weird thing about that is I'm realizing that there were certain interactions I just avoided having with members of my family when it was that time of the month. And now that I can't avoid my family at all, it's um, it really just feels like that like we've all taken as much as we can and we're dealing with as much as we can. And then like one more thing just pushes us over the edge. So it's been kind of a a loud week in our household. I would say like a week where a lot of phrases like this is my space get used towards my husband in his home (laughs) office by me. So um, yeah, it's been a a colorful week, RJ. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like, all all semblance of boundaries have gone out the window. Jamie and I are both trying to keep our jobs going. And then yesterday she had to get a root canal. So that was awesome. awesome. And um, and luckily, it's not a very busy time at church at all. You know, we're not coming into a busy season at all. <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's, it's really, it's a perfect time for this. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I was saying to someone, I mean, Jamie and I are basically either working or walk, watching Marshall Every second of every day until yeah. he blessedly falls asleep. Yeah. Um, so that's like, I, yeah, I, I was up at five this morning because she was with her root canal and passed out yesterday, mm. just trying to catch up on all the stuff I got to get done. So good times. Good times. I yeah. mean, it's going to be very uh, watching people scramble to have some semblance of Holy Week. Uh, it's just, it's, it's very stressful in, in just watching it, even though I don't, I don't have to actually do very much. Dave, I'm so worried about you just from a visual perspective. Today. Yeah, how's it, how's it going, Dave? How are you? Does your hair look crazy? On? What's, what's new you in your world? It's the moment I signed on You're telling on today. me this is not an undershirt, but it looks I wish like you one. His, his beard is starting to mesh into his chest hair, <laughs> which really is a good <laughs> This is the week where it's just all, it's all, we're all letting it all hang out. He can have like one of those sexy car washes where you press against the car, but it's a little less sexy, but maybe more efficient. You mean like the little uh, koala bear in Sing? It definitely would not be a brushless wash. I'll just say that. It'd be abrasive. Guys, uh, keep, 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 keep it coming. We should put that on Pinterest. It's like an idea. Things you can do with your kids and their dads. Wash the car with your chest. Oh, this is this. I think this is capturing the vibe. Of what this it's is like. the crafting portion Perfect. of the mocking cast. Okay. I mean, for Perfect. us, for us, it was our our dishwasher broke. You know, <laughs> which is <laughs> a, <laughs> a wonderful <laughs> situation. Because not okay. Now, <laughs> Lord knows we're not producing any nope. dishes right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I try I sh- to train like my seven year old to do the dishes, and I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's gonna work. Um, you know, because of course I hear people be like, "Well, just get your kids to do it," and oh, yeah. I think to myself, like, "Yeah, this is time to children. teach them some uh, some right. real respect right. and some uh-huh. accountability." Right now, when they, when they miss their friends desperately, have to sit in front of a computer do all their schoolwork, like now's the time for hard life. When lessons. there are no carrots, only sticks. <laughs> right. no, no carrots, no possible, re- <laughs> no possible reward. Oh my gosh! Uh, what is the, the the New York Times ran an article this week? It's like the battle over screen time is over. The screens won. The screens won. Yeah, the screens. It won. is. Yeah, my wife literally was like, "RJ, turn off screen time. I never want to get a request ever again from one of our children." Yeah. It, it just we 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 uh, we surrender. White flag. Right. 
white yeah. flag, and it is uh, a culture of survival right now. Mm-hmm. And what, let's jump into the various articles we have to talk about today. The first one is celebrity culture is burning. This is from Amanda Hessen. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> um, it must be a very hard time to be so famous. I don't know how tongue-in-cheek this article is. I think she gets to what, what her point. Uh, celebrities are not among the very wealthiest Americans, but they are the ones who are tasked with li- liaising with the general public, offering vicarious access to their lifestyles. This compact rests on the celebrity's ability to seem to move easily between the elite and the masses, to be aspirational and approachable at once. And under normal circumstances, they are accustomed to receiving accolades for, quote, using their platforms to, quote, raise awareness in the service of bland initiatives for the public good. But our awareness has never been so easy to rouse and misuse. Celebrities have a captive audience of traumatized people who are glued Mm. to the internet, Eyes darting toward trending topics for clues to processing the unimaginable horrors looming just outside, and instead are finding Madonna bathing in a rose petal strewn bath. Stunts like Gal Gadot's crowdsourced famous person cover of John Lennon's Imagine are tone deaf in more ways than one. Most of these people cannot even sing. Their contributions suggest that the very appearance of a celebrity is a salve, as if a pandemic could be overcome by star power alone. And yet the antics of these celebrities, even as they are publicly shamed, still tug on our attention. I have never thought about Gal Gadot so much in my life. In addition to food and rent money and medical attention, people require sufficient entertainment to weather the lockdown. But if I'm going to pay attention to celebrities at a time like this, their contribution better be charming or deranged enough to distract me from the specter of mass suffering and death. Boom. Celebrity culture. What do you guys think? Are you, are you glued to the screens uh, of, of your favorite celebrities? The only celebrities I'm paying any attention to are people who I respect because of other things they've done. Like I, I watched Conan O'Brien's really um, moving little tribute to the lead singer from Fountains of Wayne. Not the lead singer. Away. Not the lead Sorry. singer. Sorry. Not the lead singer. The, One of the songwriters. Uh, <laughs> One of the songwriters. Thank Sorry. you, Adam Thank yep. you for your yeah. judgment. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, but that was really moving. That was really moving. And he clearly, um, Conan did not look good. And uh, I'm appreciating Stephen Colbert a little bit right now. But other things I see, like, I don't even know about the gal. Like, Gal Gadot, like, I I don't care. And and, I, and apparently J-Lo, you know, posting something from her backyard in Miami. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess maybe I'm just, right now at the moment, I'm too busy with my own stuff to be thinking about celebrity culture. But... Sarah, are you are you more in tune than I am with the vicissitudes of? Uh, well, of course. I mean, I'm definitely more in tune with this. Um, <laughs> I so one thing I really am loving that I posted about today is um, Ellie Holcomb and her husband Drew Holcomb. Ellie Holcomb turned. She's fantastic. She's a fantastic kind of Christian crossover artist. And you know, I don't listen to much Christian music because it's bad. Um, and she has she took a lot of the stuff from the Jesus Storybook Bible and turned it into like kids albums, Christian albums, and nice, amazing. She's so gifted, and her husband Drew Holcomb is really like popular in this sort of secular world of music. And they are doing kitchen concerts, Drew Holcomb music on Instagram. I highly recommend. They've done some Johnny Cash. Um, today they did a beautiful cover of a really old John Mayer song that just like, I literally sat on my front porch and wept. And so I'm, I've loved that in terms of bigger celebrities who cannot sing. Um, I would say Alec Baldwin and his wife, Hilaria Baldwin are very fun to follow. Um, because they you know, they're like living the life we're all living right now, which is kind of fascinating to see. I mean, yes, they have way more resources than a lot of people have, but it sounds like they got out of New York city and like moved into like a home, you know, upstate. And so they're like, we're doing all the laundry, we're cooking all the food and they have Alec Baldwin. This is obviously like a second marriage. They have, um, I think five children under the age of five or something. Nice. This I can get on board with. Keep going, Sarah. So I kind of love watching them and all their madness um, because I feel like a kinship. Like they, there was a video of their oldest daughter who's about honestly the age of our daughter. And she just kept pulling shit out of her sweater. Like 
just here's another toy and here's another trick and here's another and she just kept talking and I was like this is exactly what my life feels like right now like constant show and tell it's like a show and tell that won't end um so I really appreciate that um but in terms of like other celebrities trying to spiritualize this or theologize mm. this, Mm-mm. I no. have no. This is not your Oscar moment. Yeah, just yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just shut up. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. Wait, so um, you want to sort of say like, well, you usually have a writer writing what you're saying, and now yes, we know. And we can now we're very well, clear that you, know, you did not have a very good like, education. You were meaningful equals John Lennon, and I was like, honey, shut it Mm-mm. down. No, no. Yeah, no. I, this I, is not a time yeah. we need to imagine there's no heaven. That's about the worst no, possible thing we can imagine. This is the worst possible. Yeah, when no, I'm in you. Disney World. Tell me to imagine no heaven. I'm all in. You know what I mean? If I'm in the sales section of Target, you can tell me to imagine there's no heaven, you know? But don't tell me in the middle of a pandemic that heaven doesn't exist. <laughs> my, we've been watching the, the dinner with the Gaffigans uh, most mm. nights, and Kate, like, my wife just loves them. And she, uh, they're a family, you know, with five kids, and they're all cracking jokes, and they're sort of, they're saying grace, and they're so Catholic, and it's really, mm-hmm. I don't know, kind of, they're gonna have five more kids. It's by the time hopeful. This is over. They're you know they're they're joking and they've got a huge apartment in the city, but they're in yeah. the city. They didn't leave, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and then also like you know Danger Mouse is putting out a jukebox mix every couple of days. Josh Gad is reading stories to kids. I think there's some there That's is some really fun beautiful. stuff. Yeah. Happening. Yeah. Um, Dolly Parton, which everyone has told me about, which I love, um, is doing bedtime stories. Yes, um, Dolly Parton. Because she's always had the program, right, that sends books to kids in need. And so it's, like, such a beautiful thing that she's going to be reading books to kids. I mean, she's just everybody's super fashionable, chic grandmother. So mm. I'm here yes. For I mean, I think if uh, there is something about the seculosity aspect where we sort of make celebrities pay for being famous. And yeah. if they're uh, disappointing us or if, if especially if the world feels out of our control as it does right now, we can kind of take that out on um so like a celebrity and yeah. um you know make it make us feel a little bit better to sort of to uh i don't know punish a surrogate in some way mm-hmm. uh and I, you do see that yeah i guess jennifer lopez tweeted something about hey we're all in this together and, and people responded like we hate you <laughs> <laughs> don't how far she's pretend. fallen from the super bowl <laughs> yeah you see how far she's fallen Oh my gosh! Um, but one of the more redemptive things I've seen from a celebrity is the um, RJ. Maybe you saw this, but the um, uh, the Vulture talked to a bunch of they polled a bunch of TV showrunners of series, sort of past, present, future. Like Tina Fey did a sort of if I wrote a coronavirus episode, this is what of Thirty Rock. This is what Liz would be doing. This is what Tracy would be doing. Larry David did the same thing for Kirby Enthusiasm. But in the middle of this long list, Jason Kadams, who is the showrunner of Friday Night Lights, one of our favorite, favorite shows, uh, I could say that sort of collectively, yes. he wrote a fresh speech from Coach Eric Taylor, our, the, wow. the, the, one of the patron saints. And this is it. I'm going to read to you. This is Coach Taylor. This is the end of the speech. They're in the locker room. He's, he's kind of gotten quiet after, after giving, giving some guidelines. And finally, he, he ends by saying, there's a reason we got a football team, and that's not just to win games. It's so in difficult times we have each other. Well, this is about as difficult of a time as any of us could imagine. I want you to use each other. Stay in touch as a community. Be there for each other on your phones, on Twitter, on FaceTime, or whatever kind of crap you use. <laughs> and you all got my number. Call me. I know I usually tell you knuckleheads not to call me on my cell unless it's an emergency, but right now everything is an emergency. You feeling a little sick? Call me. Feeling a little down? Call me. Is that understood? Yes, sir. We may not be on the field together right now, but we are all in this together. Together, we are going to stay strong. We are going to stay united. We are going to stay healthy. And anyone who thinks we're not going to beat this, they don't know this town, they don't know this nation, and they sure as hell don't know this team. I'll miss y'all. Tell your families that Tammy and I are thinking of them. Tell them you're all in our prayers. Stay healthy, stay safe, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. 
Oh my god, it's gonna like make me cry. I'm gonna start rewatching it. So if you're a priest and you don't, or pastor, or whatever you want to call it, uh, for your context, um, and you like don't know what to say to your people right now, just do a Facebook live video and you just read that. It's so it's so great. I mean, it's so good. It's reassuring too because I totally. I've just been bombing my entire congregation with my cell phone number. I'm just like, all boundaries out the window. Right. You know, and part of me is like, should I be doing this? But I'm like, yes, this is the moment to be doing right. this. Like, yeah, yeah, call yeah. me. I'm like, I'm actually like, if you want to talk, call me on my cell. It's good to know, you know, Coach Taylor's with me. Yes, <laughs> I, like I love that. It's yeah, great. Yeah. I love that. I do now need Tammy to come in and be like, we need to talk. <laughs> that was always like her thing, right? You know, Kate. Kate, uh, right. she just rewatched all of Friday Night Lights. My wife did, and I would just sort of come in every every few episodes mm-hmm. and watch part of it with her, and just get start crying and get my fix. And it's you forget I, how I, incredible the. Fr- I re- I remembered how good seasons three, four, and five, especially three and four, are. Uh, but season uh, one is Amazing. almost is almost perfect. And, and mm. I feel like I need to say, like, I just because I feel like people are going to hear this and uh, who like aren't into football or football culture or aren't, you know, whatever. I didn't I like I grew up in Mississippi. I never went to football games. I wasn't into football. I did musical theater in high school. And like I had nothing to do with football. And I, it took me a long time. People talked about this show. I did not start watching it until Mockingbird started talking about it. And like. All I'm thinking about right now is that I mean Kate's onto something. That's what we should all be doing right now. It's just just there, yeah. You start Friday cr- night crying. You you abreact like crazy. Oh, Everyone's okay. amazing, and um, I just I love what um, I, I always tell people in premarital counseling to to watch uh, as much of that show together as they can. I think it's a great mm-hmm. model of a, hmm. of a realistic marriage. But Sarah, you also forwarded something that Garrison Keeler wrote this week. Do you have that in front of you? You want to read the... I did. I love this. So there's this beautiful thing from Garrison Keillor. Uh, It's just his weekly little thing he sends out, um, which I highly recommend subscribing to. Uh, And this one's called What I Might Be Doing When This Is Over, which I kind of love the mightness of it because Garrison is an older man. Um, But he... He talks, I mean, he it's a, it's a weird, circuitous thing, which is how he writes. And he writes really beautiful, beautifully about um, this family member who was in the circus and sort of his, you know, re- Garrison's religious upbringing was inc- incredibly um, fervent is probably the best way to put it, almost destructively so. And so he, he kind of gestures towards that. But then he says this at the end. He says, um, I went into the storytelling trade working solo, but now the virus has brought an end to that. And I think about joining the old freak show. I would be the Corona man. The barker would yell, I direct your attention now to the tall dog-faced man who is an eight an eight, asymptomatic bearer of the deadly COVID-19 virus and who will now be passing through the crowd selling vials of souvenir sanitizer. I'll jump off the stage howling and the crowd will disperse. The tent will empty and the crowd waiting in line will come in for the next show. Life is good and we are so lucky. You need a sad dog-faced corona man to jump out and throw a scare into you. And you go home feeling achy and feverish and people put you to bed and fuss over you. And time passes and one morning you realize that you are okay. Dread and fear are what make a great story. The awareness of death is the prerequisite for all our pleasures. When I jump out at you with a bag of Purells, you will be thrilled even if I am more than six feet away and your family will be more precious to you and your cheeseburger and fries will feel like a king's feast. So, I mean, I just love this, um, this idea that, I mean, it's the thing we keep telling our kids at home and telling ourselves that this isn't forever because frankly with the mounting death toll and with you know we're watching cnn every night i'm starting to sort of realize what people felt like during vietnam when they were finally watching like you know they would watch the news every night and finally realize what was happening i feel like we're doing a little bit of that at home and um you know the other night was when we saw the tents go up in central park for the hospitals and that was the i mean we both just lost it you know 
because we used to walk through Central Park when we were newly married and because we have, you know, our dear friends and dear friends of Mockingbird, Jacob and Melina Smith are up there. Um, it's just so easy to feel like this is like a movie we're never going to be able to get out of, or this is, um, an inescapable, really, really hard thing. And I think we have to remember that it is horrible. And also it's not what things are going to look like from here on out and that there is an end game to it. I think that's important for us to know. I think it's really important for our kids to know. Um, if you have kids at home, please tell them that this is not like, um, this is not going to be forever. They're not always going to miss their friends. You know, they're not always going to miss school. Um, so I just, I mean, I'll, I, I, I know Garrison Keillor has a complicated, you know, reputation culturally, but, um, he's a person who's been through a tremendous amount and has apologized profusely and has, um, you know, I don't know. I'll take a word of consolation from that guy any day. So, Yeah. Yeah, I just found this to be another example of what we were talking last week about last week, how living in the light of um, death is a, as hard as it is sometimes, is kind of actually a, a fuller and more true way of living, a way that sort of crystallizes what is actually important. And um, and Sarah, I know what you mean, but it's not, it's, it's not going to end. That's totally true. I guess I'm, I'm in a different place with than you because my... I mean, your kids are young, right? And they're probably, yeah. they're, they're so freaking out and they're scared. We can shield news in a much easier way. Yeah. I mean, my, I, my, you know, Marshall is so young, he has no idea what's going right. on. And my two oldest know exactly what's going on. And they're just like, right. this is crazy. And I, I don't yeah. know if they're scared. They're more just like, this is, I can't believe we're actually living through this. Like, this only happens in the movies type thing. Um, we're just, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to live one day at a time as much as I can. I don't, it sounds weird to say like, yeah, we are, we are, we are going to get out of this at some point. I just don't know when that's going to be exactly, you know, and it could be two weeks from now. It could be two months from now. It could be six months from now. I don't know. I don't know how to find the balance between knowing that it's going to be, it will be over at some point, And then also just trying to live in the present and not try to, you know, project too much into the future or something. Well, but what do you guys think? I think that yeah. I, I I appreciate that because I think that you're seeing as journalists do and thinkers and cultural critics do, and I'm certainly tempted to do this. There's a lot of uh, prognostication right now about what it's going to look like, what life will look like on the other side of this, and it, it ranges from nothing will ever be the same, even remotely, to things will basically go back to normal, a little slower, and we might not gather in enormous groups for a long time, and I'm seeing this from all sides, and I want to say that I think that there's wisdom and that people process things differently, and, and yet no one saw this coming. I mean, like, there was su this was such a curveball in February even. I mean, m some people were talking about it as relates to China back then, but not in the same way. And so what will the future look like? It's going to look different than any of the people are predicting it will, and there's going to be some ways in which that's not good, and there will be some ways in which it is good. But I think it bears to be said that we, we sit there and we read these predictions of how life as you know it is never going to be the same, and some of that is true, but some of it isn't. It's all projection right now. Uh, no one actually knows what's going to happen, and that's a, that's a scary place to be, but it's, I find it also to be kind of hopeful because I, then I'll go down the rabbit hole of some of these more pessimistic thinkers or more optimistic thinkers, and either way, there could be another monkey wrench that comes in tomorrow like there has been with this whole thing. And so you can't really see into the future. Um, I'm just happy that there are some celebrities, I guess, that are giving us some uh, you know, gracious distraction in the midst of it. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's so funny. I keep thinking about the best way to, to think about this. But I'm really... I'm really like leaning on the wisdom of widows. I mean, I really am. Like I like when I think about the widows I've known who've not known what the future holds financially, who've not known what the future holds in terms of how they're going to raise their kids, where they're going to live, widows in my family and widows I've known at church. I I think there's an element if you've been around a woman that's been in that situation and let's be honest, women are usually more vulnerable when they lose a spouse younger in life. 
you kind of keep going. You put one foot in front of the other. You give yourself some grace and buy a shit ton of paper plates and you pray a lot. And I think like that's kind of like what I, you know, it's funny. I was talking with a, um, uh, a colleague of mine. We were talking about another colleague of ours who is like very chill about all this. He's a priest. He's very chill. He's like, it'll be fine. My people are going to be okay. It'll be fine. And, and, and God is so good and so glorious. Like he says all this stuff and you're just like, who is this guy? Who's this guy? Well, he's a lost boy of the Sudan. That's who he is. Yeah. Like he literally had to leave his country as a refugee. He has no family. He ended up in this country, has made a way for himself and he has seen some really horrific stuff. I mean, there's some really horrific stuff. And for him, it's like, we're, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this because we've gotten through hard things. And I, so my colleague and I were like, it was like kind of baffled by this. Like, how is that? And I was like, you know what? He's, he's a grandma. Like, he's like, he's a grandmother. Like, he's been through the stuff our grandmothers have been through. You know, like he, so he knows, like he knows that there are children to raise. He knows there's a house to keep clean. He knows there's reassurances to be given, and he knows there's prayers that need to be said. And he knows that great tragedy will happen in the midst of life, and that, yes, and and that you still have to keep up with all those other things, too, you know? Like, for the sake, not just of of your children, but also for the sake of your own sanity. Um, so, I mean, I think and grandmothers, Sudanese refugees, these are the people we need to be talking to right now, you know what I mean? And Sarah, you know, last week I, and I'm not going to do it again, but I, I was thinking back and listing all the quote-unquote impossible events I feel like I've lived through now in my, you know, 43 years on this planet. And I guess, you know, as you're talking, I was thinking to myself, when this is over, how will I process it? How will I fit it into my understanding of existence? Because what I feel like I've done with most of those quote-unquote impossible things is they don't, it's like they don't fit in the timeline. They're like, oh, well, life was normal and it was fine. Oh, then this thing happened, but then it went back to normal. And it's like, how many of these will I have to go through before these get incorporated into my vision of just the way the world is in the way that that pastor has? And and, and the sense of being surprised when something completely unexpected happens won't quite be there as much. And then as you were talking also, it reminded me you know, there are those kind of scary passages in the Bible where they talk about being watchful, you know, how the end will come like a thief in the night and like no one will be expecting it. Um, And uh, suddenly, the more these things happen, the idea of like Jesus coming back tomorrow seems not quite as impossible as it did before. And and I, those seem maybe not scary, those passages scary anymore as just a description of what happens when you've lived long enough, long enough, when and experienced enough and suffered enough that things just don't surprise you anymore, and you are ready for anything, including sort of maybe Jesus will come back today, maybe he won't, and and it it enables you to live your life as you're talking about this pastor in a day to day kind of way and get on with things, um, trusting in God even in the midst of the upheaval and the insanity and unpredictability of everything. Um, well, the the, the just know. just a bit like you know. A person can, um, you know, <coughs> blow up their entire life in a matter of minutes, as we know, and then they can also um, fall in love in the same amount of time. It, it, these things always come mm. like bolts of the blue, and no one really knows what's coming. Sarah, when you said this stuff about widows, it made me think, you know, Bill Withers, the wonderful singer who wrote Lean on Me and Ain't No Sunshine, he died today um, at oh. the age of 81. Wonderful artist, but he's got a song called Grandma's Hands. Which is, um, and he's got a preamble to it on YouTube. I put it in the Weekender this week, and it's it kind of it gets at a lot of what you're saying from a musical perspective, and trying to trying to trying to channel what he viewed as love and wisdom into a song from a child's perspective. That um, I think is 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 kind of a it's got it takes on a new gospel meaning in light of what you've just said. Well, let's move on to something um, a little bit heavier, I guess, than celebrities. Um, which is Philip uh, Acabes, I hope I'm saying that right, wrote about, in The American Scholar, he wrote about the anxiety of culpability. You know, we're always cataloging the anxieties, and here's a kind of a fresh one. He writes, These days, and even before coronavirus, social media was making every piece of advice, we talked about that a few weeks ago, no matter how useless or how incorrect, uh, correct, abundantly available. The stakes feel higher now, though. 
If I don't do yoga or meditate for stress reduction or don't drink green tea for the antioxidants and don't remember to change my Facebook password every three months, I may nonetheless remain confident that both the world and I will muddle through. But if I should be wearing a mask when I go out for a walk and I don't, will I get coronavirus and die? Worse, will I have contributed to the catastrophe by spreading the virus to others? Suddenly, civilization seems to be on my shoulders, yours too. It's not just frustration I feel then, but also the anxiety of culpability. It's not only the sudden awareness of the closeness of death that makes the coronavirus era so disconcerting, it's also the fear of terrible error. Radio and TV news reports and many newspaper stories make error seem not just consequential but disastrous. Scenes of hospitals in northern Italy are photographed as if they were charnel houses. What exactly went wrong in Italy remains to be understood, but the scenes are offered as an object lesson without an object. Someone did something wrong. The patient wasn't diagnosed immediately, and now the hospital staff members have been exposed. The soccer match was played. The kids went to the beach together. The nursing home visitors weren't screened. The cafe remained open after the lockdown order. Fault was everywhere. Was, fault was everywhere happening, but nowhere recognized. Um, the anxiety of culpability. I'd say that, to be honest with you, this was the first week for me personally where I felt this particular anxiety. Um, and part of it has to do with uh, an email we're going to read in a little bit and as well as some conversation with uh, Jacob Smith, our friends uh, and our friends sort of in New York City who are there who did not leave. Um, and also when Adam Schlesinger, who we mentioned earlier, the Fountains of Wayne songwriter who did a bunch of great soundtracks, That Thing You Do, uh, stuff like that. Um, when I heard that he died, for s something about it, uh, I'm, maybe I'm that superficial or that uh, uh, pop culture inclined, but it, it, it came crashing down. And I thought to myself, uh, this is not just an inconvenience. This is a serious danger. I think that um, the anxiety of culpability is landing in my own life, I suppose. What, what about you guys? I mean, I think that there... Yeah, I, well, I just want to say I'm totally with you. I think this was the first week I really began to feel that anxiety. I did go to the grocery store and, like, wore a mask and, like, was um, very anxious about all the old people not wearing masks standing closely to each next to each other. <laughs> um, and which then made me feel judgmental of them, which isn't useful. And... Um, I kind of think of this as this, I don't know. I get, I, I, I get, this is a horrific thing that's happening and it is terrifying. And, you know, one thing that conversation we keep having at home is they should actually show what it looks like for people to be on ventilators, um, on television. I mean, I haven't seen that yet. And in ministry, we see people on ventilators and we know how God awful it is. And, um, I think people are not scared enough, but I also, struggle with this because I struggle anytime that something happens and everyone says this is the exact right response you need to be having right now to this because I think for some of us humor is a definite coping mechanism I think for some of us who might struggle with like mental stuff who might struggle with depression might struggle with anxiety we kind of know that if we go there it will be hard to pull ourselves back and so we may not go there I struggle with the fact that like two days ago I was on my front porch and I saw a blanket on a neighbor's yard and all the neighborhood kids were on it and my kids weren't on it cause I'd have killed them. But, um, but I like, I struggled with the judgment in that moment and also with parents just doing their best. I just, so it's, it, it, the culpability thing is so, it's so strong and it, and it, and I think for those of us that struggle with anxiety, it's like, I mean, I really like, I can't, this is going to make me sound like I've gone off the rails and I have, cause we all have, but I can't actually go out anymore. Like I can't leave my house. Like Josh is having to do all the grocery shopping. Josh is having to do, um, you know, around to the liquor store. Josh is having to do those things because I, I can't leave that because anytime I've left, I, I almost hyperventilate when I'm in these spaces because I feel so guilty and so anxious at the same time. Mm. So but it's not just one uh, or the other. It's both. Right. And so if I make, if I make too many jokes or I 
whatever, I'm probably just trying to manage the fact that my anxiety is so high um, and my fear is so great, you know, that I am always, I mean, I have felt, and again, PMS, but all week long, I've been like, I think anything could make me cry Mm. right now. I mean, like, you know, it just kind of constantly like that. So RJ, PMS, what's going on Uh, with you? (laughs) As I was reading this article, it just struck me, um, yeah, the culpability, the guilt thing. And I, I've definitely been speaking to parishioners of mine who are feeling that not so much from, from the perspective of, um, am I going to do something that harms me or worse, harms someone else, but more a feeling of like watching all of these healthcare professionals work so hard and them kind of sitting at home doing nothing and being like, how, how can I be sitting here doing nothing when people are out there suffering and dying, even though I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing, and especially if I'm older. And yeah, this, this, so the combination of anxiety and guilt that way, worry for themselves, but also uh, guilt over what they're not doing. But then it also struck me from this article, so you got the guilt thing on the one hand, and then this other emotion, which there are two emotions here that we 21st century people aren't really supposed to experience. One is guilt, and the other is confusion. Right, that we have so much information about everything, we're supposed to understand things. We're not supposed to be confused. And even yesterday, when it came out on CNN or all the news channels, that this thing might be airborne and not just picking up on. It's like, well, what what is going on? Like, what is Figure what even is real? Like, how do you not know about like what? Don't 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 we have people at the CDC? So it's um. Of course we feel guilty, and of course we feel confused, because that is human life. Um, And out out of guilt and confusion, that's where superstition springs from, right? You start to understand why people become superstitious and why they start to adopt practices to somehow manage their confusion or appease the unseen gods um, that they don't understand. And it just struck me that this, you know, that... Christianity and Jesus speaks so powerfully into those emotions, um, guilt by kind of assuaging it and washing it away. I, I mean, acknowledging it, saying, yes, you are guilty, and you and whether you kill someone or not, you're guilty. Um, uh, you know, whether you do something or not, you're guilty, but guess what? You've been forgiven. It's been taken away. And then the confusion part is is sort of taken away by by saying, well, yeah, you, you're not, you're not supposed to understand everything, but they're or have things under control, but there's someone who does, and that person loves you and is with you and is on your side, and you don't need to do anything to sort of assuage that confusion. Um, so that was my reaction to these. Uh, just so striking. We, we have so much information, and yet we don't know, you know, we don't know anything. And it's terrifying and, and uh, anxiety-producing. Yeah, well, we do hold on to the, the gospel addresses the anxiety question as well as the guilt question yes it's not like an either or and it's not it just because human our hearts our experiences aren't really either or you could feel a jumble that's one of the things i I was talking to my dad about and he says everyone's feeling a very big jumble of emotions right now where you are feeling Mm. judgmental of the person next door you're feeling guilty about doing this that or the other you're feeling afraid you're feeling resentful of the news or of your you know, uh, when our governor here announced June 10th as the end of our stay-at-home thing, I mean, I almost put my fist through a window. And I, I'm not a, a very violent person, at least <laughs> until you tell me I have to be, you know, in my house with my three kids until June 10th. And the, that to me sounded like you might as well just say uh, December of 2021. Let's just let's just go there. And right. uh, but you could feel you call Domino's. <laughs> you, can... you order an extra large. And then okay, I just sorry. started wearing an undershirt <laughs> and let it all hang out. <laughs> The, no, but the, uh, the, the jumble of emotions. And you, then you see some people in their, their best selves are, coming, are emerging, people that you kind of wrote off. And then you see some people that you really respect acting like complete idiots. Or, you know, it, it, there's so much swirling around, and compassion really is the only – it's not the only. It is, it is our hope, I should say. It's not, it's not what you should do, but it is certainly the hope that people will be compassionate with me as uh, maybe I get glimpses of with each other, I, I thought, um, you know, l- l- kind of moving into a slightly different sphere, 
the the New Yorker of all places uh, brought uh, all me some places. Pr- some it's amazing it, it's some incredible. Christian hope this week, and I say that. I mean, I love the New Yorker, but I know what I'm getting when I get there, and it's almost always a sort of when I talk about religion, it's from above or outside and snarky, what have you. But here you have Casey Sepp. I hope I'm saying that right. She's a wonderful writer. She's written a bunch of different things. She written a, wrote a long book last year, but also she's right for the Pacific Standard. She's I've loved seeing her voice on the New Yorker. She wrote this incredible thing about Johnny Cash and the gospel. Uh, recently, but here she writes, the gospel in a time of social distancing, and you'll understand what I mean by the, the change of tone, which I found so welcome. She says, I worry some about how much more easily ignored the Zoom alarm is or how effortlessly I can be distracted from one YouTube video by another, the sound of an incoming email, or even just how strangely wired my brain has become to the sight of the laptop and its association with writing and work. But I have been reassured by the example of how Christians across the centuries and across the globe who could not worship together, either because of illness or distress or suppression by the state, have found ways to be the church without physically being together. It's easy to feel like all that modern gadgetry is the very opposite of spiritual, but the ability of the faithful to be together when they are not is one of Christianity's oldest technologies. I remember being in the church as a child when my father was an usher and I was barely big enough to help him pass the heavy brass offering plate. He also handed out bulletins in the narthex and delivered to the, the faithful to the altar for communion. But my favorite of all the tasks he performed was ringing the bell at the start of worship and at the end, but also near the middle of the service. Later in life, when I took a more meaningful interest in the liturgy and all its components, it finally occurred to me to ask my pastor why we rang the bell when we did during the Lord's Prayer. In response, he asked if I could name any of the farmers who were not there for worship because of the harvest, or recall any of the homebound who could no longer make it to services. We ring the bell for them, he told me, so that they know when we have gathered and when we are sent back into the world, and so that, no matter how far they are from the sanctuary, they can join us in reciting the words that Jesus taught us to pray. For almost as long as the church has existed, bells have called Christians together when they have, uh, when they have to be apart. I've thought often this week of something else I learned from another pastor, one whom I met much later in life when I was away from home living in a city where it was far more common to hear the sound of an ambulance siren. Think of it as a curie, he said, a plea for Christ to have mercy. Many of us will be hearing more of those sirens than church bells in the weeks to come, but perhaps those too can call us to prayer and to one another. It's a beautiful overview and also just personal reminiscence of uh and reminder that when we you know as we approach holy week and it feels so foreign and almost unnatural not to be able to worship god uh, together and to sort of be reminded of other people's you know reality uh that christians have dealt with this uh for much longer than just you know the month of march um but where did this uh, article send you? Well, she first of all, what she says about um, Christianity from its earliest days has been about finding a way to worship together when you're not physically together um, just immediately made me think of Paul and his letters, right? That um, in, in Church on Sundays, we've been going through Philippians, which um, Paul writes when he's in prison, um, and he writes it to a church that, among all the churches, you know, the Philippians actually kind of seem to have their act together. They don't have any major problems, and it's just basically a a letter of encouragement and his desire to be with them, but also his faith that his isolation from them and his imprisonment is serving to um, uh, serve God's purposes. You know, it's where he also talks about um, not knowing whether he's going to live or die and how he can't quite decide between the two, because he'd rather be with Jesus, but he also longs to see them again. So it feels like a good letter for our times, that all of Paul's letters are him writing to people he loves, that he's not physically near, but sort of maintaining contact with them. Um, but it just also got me thinking, and this this goes a little bit to one of the emails we got from up in the Northeast, which was so good, that the the horror of this disease is that people are dying alone, you know, they're not just dying, but they're dying alone. Um, and that's awful, and I don't want to in any way minimize that. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, the if God is real, if there is a God, 
and if Jesus was that God, um, then we know that even those who are alone aren't alone. You know, that Jesus is there uh, with them, even as he was with Paul in that prison cell, as he's been with so many Christians um, over the centuries who found themselves alone and yet not alone. Um, so I find, I don't know, it's unimaginably horrible that a member of my family would be in the hospital dying of this disease and dying alone. Um, and yet there's some small comfort knowing it, that if it was me, I, th I hope and pray I'd feel comforted and I'd physically feel the presence of God there with me in the midst of that moment. I just always feel like RJ's the nice one. Um, my mind went to this thing that I've seen everywhere on the internet that I wish I could light on fire, um, which is people keep putting up this thing that says the church is not closed. The church has been deployed. Have you guys seen this? Yeah. And I'm like, first it, of it all. It sounds like the sort of thing that would get traction, though. First of all, first of all, we're not the military. Second of all, calm down. Third of all, the church is sad. The church is not deployed. The church is sad. We are, and, and it's, and it's all this stuff like the church is more than a building. And it's like, okay. I mean, congratulations. I don't know what to say. Like, but there are a lot of like 82 year old ladies who would like to be in church for Easter and would like to worship together for Palm Sunday and would like to be able to make sense of Holy Week in the way they've always made sense of Holy Week. And so before we try to skip all that sadness and loss and like go skipping into the land of like deployment, which is just my least favorite word to use in a church context, um, I would, I would love for us to just acknowledge that like, yes, we are doing this online and yes, we are figuring out ways. And, and I think I love this piece cause it is incredibly moving to see clergy trying to figure this stuff out. Um, I mean, I, I have to say that we, when I realized we were going to have to do this, I just kept envisioning it being me. I don't know if I've said this already, but I envisioned it being me with our 11 year old iPad holding it up in the sanctuary, yelling at my children behind me while Josh, like, tries to make something work. And there were these... That vision may still come to I'm, pass. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> Prognostication not or not. Exactly. There's this, there's this woman my husband hired, like, two weeks before this hit. And her husband, like is like a legit videographer and Unfair. like edit stuff together. Not cool. <laughs> and that is the only reason why it's got, I mean, that was like literally a miracle that that happened because the other option was me yelling at children and holding an iPad. Um, so, I mean, it has been incredibly moving to see people try to figure this out, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's been a very complicated thing for me to, I don't know, and I've said this before, here before, but for for us it to feel like that we're we have to almost like optimize the situation. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, and I think it's very interesting God's timing that this is Holy Week, um, because this is kind of the time when we shine the most as Christians, and you know, doing church, and the fact that we're having to figure out how to do it in a cohesive way where people feel loved and feel known without, you know, the timpani or whatever it is your church does is really challenging. Like, I don't even want to say that. I've heard so many clergy be like, this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is terrible. Like we're, none of us are equipped for this kind of leadership. And like that meme that went around that said like, basically like get ready for worship this Sunday. Cause I'm doing it in my garage and it's going to look like a bin Laden video. <laughs> like it's like true. Like a lot of them look like that. Like people are doing the best they can. And this is a shit show. Yeah. Happy Easter. Well, I like to I like to see that there's there's a lot of love behind some of these videos as They're totally, which is the that's so much better to me than like the shininess of it. Like the commitment, the like like literally there was a smaller church I watched that I love the clergy there and like you I it was an old iPad and I could hear the wife whispering in the background. There was an unfortunate story I heard of one spouse leading worship on the computer and the other spouse being in the bathroom and realized 
that he had left the um, shampoo in the kitchen and just no clothes, just walked behind. So (laughs) we're all doing the best we can. There's also that one of the, uh, I guess, the Greek Orthodox uh, sort of um, priest who's celebrating (laughs) communion, but his his son had put some setting on the phone that was recording him, and every time he got too close, huge googly eyes appear over his eyes. Or... <laughs> there was it, there's there's a lot of there's the guy there's the priest in England who's sort of the funny aloof but sweet clergyman who light, lights a candle fire. and then goes on fire. Um, well, but let's let's actually read this email that I that we received because yeah. you know we've said we were going to read emails and we got a, a wonderful one from this is from Nathan Hart, a friend of ours who is the head pastor at Stanwich Congregational Church in Fairfield County, Connecticut. If you're anywhere near there, go check it out. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And Nathan is... And Fairfield County, my mom lives there. It's been hard hit. It's been real... It's a a bedroom community in New York, and it's been very hard hit. Yeah. It's very close to... Yeah, uh, from early on. Now, he writes a lot of niceties. He's a listener to the show, but I'm going to get into the meat. He says, I want to offer a perspective from the New York City region where lots and lots of people have the virus already, and some are starting to die. There are 8 to 12 positive cases in my congregation already. And when I spoke to Jacob Smith, by the way, in at Calvary in near Union Square last week, he said there, there were 13 cases in his oh. own congregation. He says, what you probably don't yet realize is that people are dying alone. When in hospital with COVID-19, a patient is totally isolated, even from loved ones. Furthermore, people who are dying in hospitals from any other cause, cancer, Cetera, are only allowed one family visitor at a time. My elder's chairs, uh, my elder chair's mom died last week alone. This additional unspeakable emotional tragedy is much harder to deal with than a quote-unquote normal death. I'm ministering to a woman in my congregation whose elderly father is dying from COVID-19 in a hospital north of Boston as we speak. She and her husband and their boys cannot even drive up there right now because they're sheltering in place here in Connecticut. Even if they drove up there, they would not be allowed to see him in the hospital. To this family, I am not saying, cheer up, look at all the blessings happening in our society. A couple of weeks ago, I would have said pretty much everything you guys said on your podcast episode last week. Yes, people are dying, but didn't they know they were going to die anyway? And yes, it's all terrible, but hey, we're catching up on sleep and reprioritizing. Now, however, these kind of statements seem inappropriate in the face of the emotional cruelty that dying alone brings to the one dying and all who love them. The best gospel comfort I can bring to these people is the truth that Jesus died alone too. Mm. He was he was utterly isolated and socially distanced, mm. so to speak, even by the Father. Jesus, he prays, draw near to those who are dying in isolation because you know what they're going through. Comfort them and bring them home. Amen. Amen. Love in Christ, wow. Nathan Hart. Now that is... Now, that mirrors something, RJ, that you just said, but also something that Jacob Smith said. The, the number one thing he's trying to get across to his parishioners is that they are not, in fact, dying alone, mm-hmm. that, they, that God is with them, and that is a tough pill to swallow. And yet it is what we, as we enter into the end of Lent and the Holy Week and a Good Friday, I mean, why do we call this Friday good? I mean, Holy because Holy. of this crucified Savior who was abandoned who was isolated from you know god himself i mean it's it's a it it sounds almost trite to connect those dots but to hear nathan say it who's in the midst of really dealing with people who are in uh the midst of this real horror um i i want to say that i i really hope uh you know uh, we eat our we eat our some of our words while also you know keeping the door open for to, to laugh and to cope as we can. But, um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for that uh, perspective and also yeah. very sad about it. You because know, I, had, I had known that you weren't, <clears throat> if you were dying of COVID-19, you weren't allowed to see anyone, but I did not realize that if you're dying of anything else, you're only allowed to see one person at a time. That's very... Yeah, I mean, we, you know, yeah, we've got women in our congregation who are going to give birth in the next month. Yeah. My my brother lives in Brooklyn, and his wife is due in July. And right now, he, you know, he yeah. won't be able to be there for the birth of his yeah. child. Yeah. Well, I thought, uh, do I sort of want to read the final piece we have, and then we can sort of talk yeah. about the gospel comfort because 
this is sent to, I saw this through, Alan Jacobs uh, posted this or a link to it somewhere, and um, this is the Reverend Canon um, Jessica Martin at Ely Cathedral in England, who is, she's married to our friend Francis Spufford, the wonderful writer who is actually, if, as you prepare for Palm Sunday, if you want to read the, the, one of the best passages ever written about Palm Sunday, read his passage in the Yeshua chapter about Palm Sunday. Are we allowed to call him our friend? Like, does he does he know who we are? <laughs> he does. He knows who Dave is for sure. <laughs> this is uh, this is, but his wife uh, is turns out she is uh, truly anointed, and she gave a sermon, mm. and this sermon was transcribed onto Facebook. I'm going to put the video of it in our uh, in the Weekender. She's writing about the passages from last week, which was the death and raising of Lazarus. She reads, "Jesus weeps for Lazarus, whom he loved and who died when he was far away." He weeps for himself and for the goodness of life which he must leave, for the connections of love which will fall away, for the promise and hospitality of his first transforming encounters, shattered now by the pain and isolation which lie in front of him. He weeps for and with the griefs of the human family for whom he will die, for every isolated death, every grieving sister and brother and mother. The lonely sorrow of every human being begins to fall upon the Son of God at the grave of his friend. But he does not look away, and he does not falter. Love needs to be unflinching. Faced with the great rock doorway which separates the living from the dead, he says, roll away the stone. And from the place of death, real, actual death, with all the tragedy and sorrow which must attend it, the living man Lazarus will respond to God's words of love and stumble blindly towards light and safety. Because Jesus will die, Lazarus, who died, will live. There will be another tomb and another great rock doorway between the living who grieve and the body's resting place. And it will be rolled away by angels to reveal a space as clear and as empty as the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem's temple. The living, loving person will be somewhere else entirely. Because the story of Jesus' encounter with Lazarus is not a story of rescue, but of what happens beyond rescue. Not a story of healing, but of impending sacrifice. Not a story of triumph, but of patience. Looking ahead to his own suffering, Jesus shows us the one important thing about the grief of God, and it is this, that love is stronger than death. She says it in a beautiful English accent that uh, (laughs) elevates it into the sort of, into the spheres. Um, but um, well, how does that strike you, too? I mean, I think there's just such great reassurance in that passage that, like, we don't suffer alone. I mean, that's always what I kind of go back to because it is so strange to me that Jesus cries when he hears that Lazarus has died because Jesus would have also known that he could heal Lazarus. Um And Lazarus is just one person, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to me, that story, because one thing that troubles me sometimes about more liberal circles of Christianity, which I love, but is y'all love to globalize stuff. I mean, it's like God of the galaxies, you know, it's just this big picture thing. And, and what, what I love about the Lazarus story and what I love about she's saying is like, it's it's actually so specific. Like Jesus just came for this one person and Jesus loved this one person just the way that Jesus loves you. And that we need to know that right now. Like we need to be able to find our rest in that right now. And, and we, we especially, you know, on some level when I hear about people dying alone, there's a certain thing that happens in my brain where I think I need to think about what that would be like now. Because while there aren't a lot of 37-year-olds dying of this, there are some, you know. And what would it mean, what would it be like to know that you would be alone and dying? Not that I can imagine that or conjure it, but like how do I navigate that? How do I think about that? And and how do I find comfort in the gospel and these stories um, knowing that Jesus came for the one person because Jesus loved the one person? Um, yeah. I think... What I thought was, uh, you know, the three of us, we work in the realm of the invisible. You know, that's not always true. There are some things that we do that are 
visible and tangible. But for the most part, the things we talk about, the things we care about, the things we work around are not, they're invisible. And sometimes because they're invisible, they feel less real. And sometimes I wonder what the value is um, in working in the realm of the invisible. But um, this, is, this sermon is just such a powerful reminder that, uh, that the most important, most powerful, most lasting things in the universe are invisible. Um, and specifically love, you know, something which you, um, you can't see, uh, but is there um, nonetheless. And as she says, you know, love is, is more powerful than death. And the hope that comes with that, the way that that sustains people's lives, um, that, that hope and love truly are more important than, um, you know, bread or shelter or, um, or anything else. Um, so yeah, powerful, powerful words as we live through this, um, this time of death. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's much to say beyond that that's the, the hope that we cling to, <clears throat> that love is, love is stronger than death. And um, as even with, if the, me- the words taste funny on your lips when you say it, mm. I think there's also moments where, you know, a, the, the emotional reality kind of takes hold and you see um, glimpses of this. I mean, I, I have just watched all these Lord of the Rings movies, and I think that something that Tolkien is getting at in that is that even love is stronger than even than lust for power, and, um, mm. th- that, and that God can work amidst so much death, and, um, and that, that's all the, that, that, that the empty tombs are... Um, this isn't Tolkien, but this is simply our, our hope as we head into Palm Sunday that, re- I mean, there's a reversal that happens that we're about to celebrate, the reversal of this, these triumphant people that have completely turned tail within you know, almost 24, 36, 48 hours. And again, the reversal, the even now that, um, that I think Martha and Martha expresses in that passage, even now, if you choose, you can you can you can you can do something here and so Martha's such a pain in the ass <laughs> <laughs> she's like if you'd been here <laughs> oh well you, you know, interrupted my reverie I, that's all i got sorry <laughs> i just i um yeah i keep thinking about palm sunday because <laughs> you know my ministry is a college students and some of them are like raised in the church and super faithful some of them are raised in the church and you know, struggling with belief in God and all those things. And I'm actually finding better kinship with the ones who are like, I don't know how I feel about God right now. Cause I think that's like actually pretty faithful. Like, I don't know how I feel about God right now. And it is weird. I'm like, what is God doing that this Sunday is, you know, Palm Sunday where we like welcome God in on a donkey and there's like this, these notions of royalty and all this stuff. And it's like, well, well, what God is doing is telling us really clearly that we, it doesn't actually matter how we feel about God, but that God will always feel the same way about us. And like that there's a lot of comfort to be found there. Like that it doesn't matter that we feel like it does matter that we feel like we're alone, but it, it, but, but, but that's how we feel. And human emotion is so hard to trust and so tempestuous, um, especially if it's in its time of the month. And so we can't trust that, you know, we have to trust that God is bigger than that, is bigger than us, but loves us specifically in the midst of it. So... Yeah, not to trust our temptation to believe that we see and interpret everything that's, as it's going on correctly, because it's certainly the... We don't interpret any the, of it correctly. The, <laughs> the, the stories that we... I don't. The, no, well, the Good Friday that we're... And, and the Holy Week that we're... We, we interpreted everything wrong. I mean, we, we continue right. to. And right. I, I, meaning yeah. I do. You, the three of us do, not just out there. Right. It's, Coming to right. faith in Jesus means giving up on what we were tempted to by the devil to understand things clearly, to have knowledge of good and evil. It means giving up on all mm. that and just trusting God and saying, we don't know what's good, we don't know what's evil, we don't know anything. All we know is we trust God and uh, to fall back into a place of creatureliness and um, 
yeah, dependence. I think. Yeah. The other the other thing though, yeah, th- and that's beautiful. I think that 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 kind of holy ignorance or something, or or at least just lack of self righteousness is a great thing. But we also are entering the week and like, well, you cannot go around the the cross and the grieving and the. Uh, th- that Sarah, yeah. you were sort of talking about it in terms of how people are viewing the church and mm-hmm. and the doubting and the the absence, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is what is part of this. You what, what my dad's always say, said that you know you cannot pole vault over Good Friday to Easter. Well, we're being confronted with that right now. We're having to walk straight mm-hmm. into up Calvary Hill, you know, and right. to be confronted with the fact that we're crucifying the the only good mm-hmm. thing that ever happened to us, you know, and um, mm. and yet. Not even that can stop, not even that can stop God, and yet the temptation to go around or to circumvent the 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 grief and the the the, the sadness and the absence and the darkness and the sin and the death and the um, that that is ultimately uh, leads you um, away from in fact that that empty tomb as well, I think. Um, or at least yeah. really understanding what it means. Em- emotionally, it's very hard. We, we, and I, I think it's wise to not, to not emotionalize this over or sentimentalize it because what did uh, Leslie Jameson say in that quote we read last week? Like, faith is sometimes hoping that there's something beyond these feelings that I have. That mm. these are not, it's almost like a, there's, a, there's yes. another horizon. And yes. uh, whether I feel like there is one right now or not, that that's an act of faith. So that's my Palm Sunday uh, sermon, I guess, that I'm not going to give. <laughs> <laughs> Any closing it's shots? It's weird, you guys. No, it's just weird. Okay, well then I deploy you. I deploy you both. Oh, so don't. deployed right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I deploy you to your living room. I deploy you in the name of the Lord. Please don't deploy me. <laughs> I don't want to fight. Uh, I don't want to fight. I'm tired. I have to learn three, third grade math right now. Please don't deploy me. Well, there you go. Um. Well, Happy Palm Sunday, I guess. Hosanna, Hosanna. We, we love you, all who are listening, and yeah. thank you. Um, our prayers sure. are with you. And uh, Let us know how you're doing out there. Hopefully you felt a little less alone. Uh, I know I have by conversing with the two of you. And yes, as RJ said, please keep, keep the letters coming. Uh, we would love to hear how this is uh, resonating or not. Well, actually, we only want to hear how it is resonating. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, bye, you two. Bye. bye. Talk to have you next week. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Thank you.